On this episode of Hear Tell, we search for spirits, we seek the afterlife in a sleepy central Florida town. This town in Florida that has 35 acres of weird people. And the moon pulls the tide and the tide brings night, but night is more than just a night in Casadega, where Mayberry meets the twilight zone. My name is Andre Gallant, and this is Hear Tell, a podcast about true stories and how they get told. We're a project of the Low Residency MFA, a narrative nonfiction program in the Grady College of Journalism at the University of Georgia. To learn more, visit bit.ly slash Podcast and find us on social media. We're at Podcast on all platforms. My guest today is Moni Basu a veteran journalist who teaches as part of the MFA faculty and serves as the Michael and Linda Connolly Lecturer for Narrative Nonfiction in the Journalism Department at the University of Florida. Moni is on the show to read and discuss a story she wrote called In Search of Spirits in Casadega, which was originally published by Flamingo Magazine, a Florida-based lifestyle publication. In the story, Moni travels to Casadega, known as the psychic capital of the world and home since 1894, to followers of spiritualism, a faith that believes that we never truly die, that we leave our bodies and become some other form of matter, and that our spirit selves can interact with the living. People from all over travel to this town, about an hour north of Orlando, to meet with mediums in hopes of communing with ancestors. It follows then that a curious place like Casadega, called a Mecca for mystics, has become the source of much lore and legend for Floridians. Moni headed to Casadega to investigate some of the myths surrounding the place, but found herself warming to the possibilities of an afterlife. A lot of aspects of what happens to us after life and religion and spiritualism, they've been things that I just have shunned all my life. But after going to this place and being surrounded by people who actually believe that after someone dies, they are still with us very much. They're still very, very much with the living. I drove away from that place really thinking that my mom was with me, that my mother's spirit was with me. Before teaching college full-time, Moni reported her way from newspaper newsrooms to the digital features team at CNN, where she built a reputation for telling intimate and expansive stories about the trauma of war global migration, and movements for justice worldwide and here in the United States. She knows well the power of narrative storytelling to transform people and places. After Moni reads her story, we discuss why a first-person approach, even when the story is about someone else, helps her connect the subject to its audience. I'd like to know um, a, a bit of an explanation before we get into the story about what Casadega is and and, um, and and how it came into your life. Yeah, I opened the story with a Tom Petty song that he recorded. It was the B-side of Don't Do Me Like That, which was a huge hit when I was in high school and college. And uh, 
I wasn't like a huge Tom Petty fan, but enough of one to know that song, you know, uh, or know of his music. And of course, I moved to Gainesville in 2018, which is where Tom Petty is from. And he's huge in Gainesville. And after he died a couple of years ago, you know, there was there were huge memorials to him. And every year there's a Tom Petty festival. And so he's he's just kind of in my consciousness all the time in Gainesville, more than probably he would have been anywhere else. And um, so that's not how this story came about, though. So I had heard that the name of that town, Casadega, and I had also heard all the lore that is uh, that exists about Casadega, which is that it's a haunted town that creepy people live there, the dead go walking in the park, birds don't fly over Casadega, uh, you know, uh, all sorts of creepy stories that you can go there and if you stay at the Casadega Hotel, you're gonna see ghosts at night and uh, all that kind of stuff. So that's the reason actually why a lot of people uh, go to Casadega. Um, it is situated, you know, kind of, smack in the middle of Daytona Beach in Orlando. And so if you're traveling on Interstate 4, which is a major thoroughfare in Central Florida, uh, you know, chances are you're gonna see signs for Casadega or you've like picked up a tourist brochure or gone to a website that's, uh, you know, beckoned you to, to you know, uh, visit the town. And because it has all that mystery swirling around it, a lot of people go just out of curiosity. And the other thing I knew about Casadega is that, you know, in recent years in America, there's been an explosion of sort of new age ideas and people have gotten into yoga and meditation and uh, a lot of um, spiritual stuff that I grew up with in India, you know, and kind of rejected because I was kind of forced to do a lot of that stuff as a child. Um, and so a lot of folks go out of curiosity and a lot of folks go because they want to have a reading with a medium. They want to get in touch with their spiritual selves. And there are lots of, you know, shops there that sell crystals and, you know, different kinds of things that all the, you know, psychic paraphernalia that we've come to know and love. Um, and so that's about all I knew about Casadega. Until, um, you know, I've been writing, uh, doing some freelance work for Flamingo Magazine, which is a relatively new uh, magazine that really focuses on culture and lifestyle in Florida. And they had asked me for ideas and, um, you know, long down on my list was Casadega. You know, I'd like to do a story on Casadega. I've heard a lot about it, but I don't really know what it is. And I'd like to go, actually. I'd like to visit. And they were all for it. And so I went down there after having done some research. Actually, there was a University of Florida professor who had written a book about Casadega. And it turns out that there's a lot more depth to Casadega than, you know, the stuff you see um, in, in the media. It is the home of the largest spiritualist camp in America. And spiritualism was a religious movement that came up in Victorian times. It really was started in upstate New York and caught fire. And there was uh, a man who belonged to that movement 
George Colby, who went down to Casadega because he had a, a Native American, a Seneca Indian guide who he believed led him to this land in central Florida. And at that time, Florida was, you know, that part of Florida, all of Florida was pretty much wilderness. And he, you know, thought he had found the most perfect place to start uh, a camp there that was tied to uh, the movement that was uh, that had started in upstate New York. And this would be the perfect place for people to come down, especially in the middle of winter when, you know, upstate New York, a century and a half ago, I imagine it was even colder when upstate New York was just covered in snow. And so he came down and the camp started to grow in this small town and became, um, uh, became a big attraction for a lot of uh, followers of this movement. And the movement, of course, you know, um, it still exists today. There are, uh, it's hard to estimate exactly how many people call themselves spiritualists in America, but by some numbers, it's as many as 150,000 people. So it's not just a small little thing. Um, and so I went down there to sort of investigate that, but I knew I was writing for Flamingo magazine. And so I had to make it also more of a cultural uh, piece. You know, here's this town that you might be visiting on your vi trip to Florida. And let me tell you about what it's like down there. What were the, um, the kind of more personal questions that you thought you might be able to answer for yourself there? Yeah. So as I mentioned, you know, I grew up in India and, um, in a, a, my mother's side of the uh, family, they really believed in, um, they were very, very spiritual people. And, uh, you know, in Hinduism, the core belief is when you die, you die physically, but your soul does not die. Your soul goes free. And Hin a lot of Hindus believe that your soul is then reincarnated into another living being. Um, I don't personally believe in reincarnation. I grew up in uh, my nuclear family. My father was a scientist and he rejected religion, period. He did, certainly didn't believe in all this stuff. But as a child, I was exposed to it at my grandfather's house where my cousins would hold seances. Of course, they didn't know what they were doing. It was just to spook the younger kids like me, right? They would move the pencil on the paper in this dark room. And, and call out the names of my mother's ancestors. And as a child, I believed all that. I really thought, oh my gosh, you know, we can talk to the spirits. And then I, you know, I didn't really think very much about it a lot of my adult life. But when I started doing this research on spiritualism, I kind of started drawing the connections between, you know, the Eastern beliefs and Hinduism and, um, and what the spiritualists believe. The spiritualists also believe that when you die, it's a physical death, that you never die, your soul never dies. And in my story, I spoke with a 94 year old woman and I asked her quite bluntly, aren't you, are you afraid of dying? And she said, why, why would I be afraid? I'm, I'm not gonna die, I'm still gonna keep living. It's just, I won't be physically present as the person that I am anymore. And so I found that aspect of it fascinating that um, on the one hand, 
a lot of the folks who were practicing spiritualists, most of the people I spoke to for this story were, had been raised Roman Catholic in very strict, devout Catholic households, right? And a lot of them were Irish Catholics from upstate New York. Um, and But they had found a certain amount of freedom in this, in this belief, in this belief of spiritualism. And it is kind of liberating in a way when you think about it. It takes the fear of death, aging and death away, you know, that you're not really going to leave this earth except in physical fashion. And spiritualists believe that once you die, you know, you, you, you are part of the spiritual world that surrounds the, you know, those who are still physically living and that we can draw a lot of guidance and um, uh, an intellectual enlightenment, enlightenment from those who have passed before us. Before I, I dug in and, and read and then listened to this story, I had some, you know, I had made my own assumptions of what kind of story it was going to be, right? Just looking at the headline and looking at the deck, that this was going to be a kooky Florida story, right? Because of all the stereotypes and archetypes that we have of Florida man and, and, and the swamps and, and, and whatnot. But, um, you know, it doesn't take long to get into the story until you realize, like, one... It's an American story. And then two, it's a global story. And then three, it's another worldly story. Yet you are never kind of removing us from the grittiness of, of place. Um, so I'd love to know how you thought about balancing kind of these different uh, needs as a storyteller and the needs of your audience for the type of piece that they were going to uh, encounter. Yeah, so <clears throat> that's a really great question, Andre. And I had to think very seriously about how I was going to write this piece. I've spent a day and a half down there um, and I came back and uh, for many days there, was, there were no words on my laptop screen. I just had to uh, really think because the tendency would have been to write that Florida man kooky story, right? That was the easy story to do. And I had read lots of stories written by reporters who had gone down there and written exactly that. Wanna to go to some scary place? Here it is, you know? So I wanted to be careful about not doing that out of respect to the people I had met down there. Uh, whether or not you share in their beliefs, the, most of the people I interviewed down there were um, deeply philosophical and uh, intelligent and had you know, thought a lot about what life means for us on this planet. And then as I started thinking about that, you know, I started, I had never intended to write this as a first person piece. I, I had done a lot of reporting for this piece and I had enough material to keep myself out of it. Um, but as I thought about it more and started, those memories of childhood came back and some of my own struggles with, um, you know, what happens after death. I've, I've really grappled with that question since my parents both died 20 years ago. Um, up until then, I, I was pretty much, I guess, a non-believer. And I just believe when you died, you died. And there was nothing after that. But after my parents died, I was especially close to my mother and she died very young at 69. And um, I have thought a lot about that. You know, I have their ashes in my house, a little bit of their ashes in my house. And I wonder if my 
parents are, you know, if they, if their spirit has guided me to the place where I am now in life. And so these were issues that I was grappling with and I have not come to any conclusions as, as you can see from the piece. Um, but I thought it was really important. Uh, oh, the other aspect of it um, that I thought about a lot is that how do you talk about a, a philosophical movement um, in terms that most readers of Flamingo Magazine would comprehend, right? Flamingo Magazine is, is not the, I mean, it's not a religious, religious magazine. It's not the New Yorker, you know, it, it's, a, it's got a wide audience. And, you know, we talk a lot about this in the MFA program about writing for your audience and keeping that in mind. And so, um, as you said, rightly, it was a kind of a delicate balance of to get, get across what spiritualism is and get across the importance of this land to these people. Because yes, place, this is a story about a place, right? And I had to capture correctly what that place was about. But also, it was about my personal story. And this, this visit, I think I wanted to go to Casadega as part of my own journey, in a way. Um, to find out more about these issues that I've been thinking about for so long. Um, and to make it interesting enough to people who might not be, uh, who might, might have very strong religious beliefs <clears throat> in one faith or another to get them interested in reading this story. Here's Moni Basu reading, In Search of Spirits in Casadega. I live in the city where Tom Petty is king. But until recently, I had not paid heed to the B-side of his 1979 hit, Don't Do Me Like That. Petty allegedly drew inspiration for the more obscure song after reading a New York Times story about a place populated by psychics. Casadega lies only two hours from Petty's hometown, Gainesville, but he had never heard of it let alone visited, and he even misspelled its name in his lyrics. In a video clip of a live performance, Petty's introduction is either drunken or derisive. This is a song about this town in Florida that has 35 acres of weird people. Weird people. That's one way, a rather irreverent way, to describe Casadega home to the oldest spiritualist camp in the Southeast. It has been here since 1894, after trance medium George Colby was instructed by Seneca, his Native American spirit guide, to journey south from his home in upstate New York in search of a place surrounded by uncommon hills and fed by the pristine waters of lakes and springs. He traversed the Florida wilderness and found that place in Casadega, which he named after a spiritualist community in New York whose members were looking for a winter home. In the Seneca language, Casadega means water beneath the rocks. So began the Southern Casadega Spiritualist Camp Meeting Association. Casadega is, as its history suggests, a place of calm and serenity, a contrast to the dizzying assemblage of tourist attractions a few minutes away on Interstate 4. I read a story that suggested Casadega, 
not far from either Orlando or the string of beach towns that line Florida's Atlantic coast, was emotionally worlds away. But despite its purest intents, despite the people who settled here in hopes of establishing a spiritualist utopia, there's no denying that for outsiders, Casadega has served as somewhat of a spectacle, swirling an urban myth that has earned the town monikers like psychic capital of the world and metaphysical mecca. The bookshop sells t-shirts that say, Casadega, where Mayberry meets the Twilight Zone. Lore has it that the Hotel Casadega is haunted, as are many of the houses. That if you sit on the stone seat at the cemetery in nearby Lake Helen, the devil himself will communicate with you that birds don't fly over Casadega. Volusia County once hoped to lure droves of tourists wandering through the flatlands and pine forests of central Florida with a brochure that beckoned, looking for someplace unusual? Now it invites visitors to come feel the healing energies. That, I suppose, reflects seismic societal shifts that ushered in an American embrace of yoga, meditation, and all things considered a bit woo-woo for generations past. A few decades ago, Casadega might have been that freak attraction tourists could take in between their jaunts to Disney and Daytona. It still might be that for many folks, but I've met people who take the medium, psychics, and vibe quite seriously and journey to Casadega to find a better way. A reputable Pew Research poll conducted two years ago found that roughly six in ten Americans accept at least one of the New Age beliefs of reincarnation, astrology, psychics, and the presence of spiritual energy in physical objects like trees, all considered oddities in the America of my youth. I'm not sure what I will make of it all. But on a balmy Saturday morning, as a tropical storm churns over warm ocean waters and threatens to dampen my weekend, I take the road toward the paranormal. Somewhere on State Route 40, I sip the last gritty remnants of my morning espresso and begin listening to Petty. Well, the clouds go by in the big blue sky as the sun beats down on Casadega. I know friends and colleagues who have taken the same two-lane highway to Casadega. Some went in search of answers. Others wanted to commune with the dead, to be close to their deceased loved ones. My aims, I confess, are perhaps less honorable. I'm driven by the curiosity of the journalist that I am though the question of the finality of death has burned inside me with the passing of my parents. Spiritualism, as a religious movement, is based on a diverse set of beliefs, but it promotes an individualistic experience with God and the proposition that God is infinite intelligence. At its core is the principle of continual life, that departed souls are very much the same as they were in their physical lives and that they interact with the living, to inform and guide us. The only disruption that the end of life brings for spiritualists is the demise of the physical being, 
a concept that I suppose relieves us from grief, mourning, and a fear of death. Some tenets of spiritualism echo the Hindu belief system in which I was raised and are not wholly unknown to me. The Bhagavad Gita, part of the Hindu scriptures, refers to the soul as immortal, meaning that it does not die with a person's body. When I was still in elementary school, my brother and I often visited my grandfather's house in North Kolkata on weekends. Built by the British, the four-story house wrapped around a courtyard, brought iron balcony railings gracing each floor. No one knew exactly when the house had been built, but it looked significantly older than its years, tired from the dampness of the monsoons and the neglect of renters who hardly had the means for its upkeep. It was as though the house was crying perpetually. Earthquakes had sent cracks down the walls in lightning-strike patterns, and scorpions lived among the crevices. Stung by one once, my cousin was rushed to the emergency ward of a local hospital. His arm swelled and turned the purple of an evening sky. Here, in these otherworldly rooms, my cousins and I spent lazy afternoons lying under whirring fans. We had no music or television for diversion. Instead, we told spooky stories to keep ourselves entertained. And, once in a while, my older cousins would lead me into the darkness of a mezzanine room between the second and third floors, where we sat in a circle on fading bamboo mats and called the spirits. Sometimes we practiced seances with a pencil atop a white sheet of paper and closed our eyes as one of my cousins called the names of familial ancestors, my grandfather's father or my grandmother who had died at a young age. In the oppressive heat of the afternoon, sweat trickled in small rivers down the landscapes of our foreheads and our backs. But we sat picture still in pitch blackness, hoping, hoping for the wisdom of the dead. And the moon pulls the tide, and the tide brings night. But night is more than just a night in Casadega. How a religious community with ideas anathema to Christian traditions, ideas in which there is neither sin nor repentance, neither salvation nor eternal damnation to hell, And Jesus is a spiritual leader, but not the Son of God, had not just survived but thrived here in the heart of Florida, was intriguing to me. Donald Trump won Volusia County in 2016 with 55% of the vote, and his face stares at me from highway billboards, along with unborn fetuses and advertisements for gun and ammunition shops. This is conservative country, and yet a rich philosophical movement took root here and flourished. It is a part of Florida history few really know. It is nearly 11 in the morning when I make my final turn onto Casadega Road. I look upward at angry clouds threatening to burst at any moment. It doesn't look like the weather will cooperate for the Sunset Orb Tour, which walks visitors through energy hotspots. I've read reviews on TripAdvisor in which photographers captured the spirits as translucent light not with their cell phones, but by using a digital point-and-shoot camera. I'm not sure I understand the difference. 
On first sight, Casadega reminds me of its namesake. It's a tiny, unincorporated community of Victorian-era clabbered houses in various states of decay, much like the ones that dot the small towns long past their glory days in upstate New York. The town earned a National Register of Historic Places designation in March of 1991. The citation mentions the Mediterranean revival style of the Casadega Hotel and the Colby Memorial Temple. There is a post office, but no stores here, except a few that sell crystals and other New Age accoutrements. Most people make the short drive to Deland for food, gas, and other essentials. Bummer about the rain, I think as I grab my bag and brawly and make my way into the hotel gift shop to check into my room. Diana Morn, clad in crimson lipstick and plastic face shield, tells me this is the busiest weekend since the coronavirus commandeered every aspect of our lives and disrupted Casadega, just like every other tourist spot in the Sunshine State. Do you feel the energy today? she asks. I smile, not knowing exactly how to reply. Morn, 69, came to Florida on a vacation from her native Wisconsin and stayed. She had visions, she says, all her life, heard things, saw things. But no one really understood her until she planted herself here. God, she says, led her to this hotel, which she has owned since 1979. But this is their home, she tells me. We are just visitors. A fire burned down the original wood frame hotel on Christmas Eve in 1925. It was rebuilt the following year. Morn tells me many of the spirits who inhabit, she doesn't like to use the word haunt, the building are from that era. I look around the lobby filled with Queen Anne tables, chairs, and couches that have long lost the spring in their seats some made by the famed Berkey and Gay. It's certainly not the Hyatt Regency, but if I change things, the spirits wouldn't like it, she tells me. I wonder if this place really is filled with the spirits. What will my sleep be like tonight? I learned that Morn was raised Catholic, but if she had to own a religion today, she wouldn't. She calls herself spiritual, but is not a spiritualist. The hotel used to be owned by the National Association of Spiritualists, but separated during the Great Depression. Therefore, Morn is not subjected to the strict rules that govern the camp. She permits psychics, tarot card readers, and palmists, who are not allowed to operate within the camp, to hold sessions in the lobby or in an upstairs hotel room. It quickly becomes obvious to me that Casadega is divided not just by geography, but by principle. On one side of Stevens Street are the 57 acres belonging to the camp. On the other is the hotel and the metaphysical shops that are not necessarily held in high esteem by true spiritualists. Soon I'm greeted by Darlene McCormick, the Public Relations Committee chairperson for the camp. She hands me an envelope filled with information about Casadega and tells me things I need to know. The hotel is haunted, she says, and makes sure that I know it is not a part of the camp. McCormick, a 66-year-old Pittsburgh transplant, informs me she is studying to be certified as a medium, a process that includes 200 hours of classes and seminars and can take up to six years. 
She is hoping to be done by the start of next year. Only certified mediums are permitted to work within the camp. Mediumship, she says, is serious business. It isn't something just anyone can do. When I was little, I knew things like when people were going to die, she says. She followed her instincts to Casadega. McCormick has already sent me an itinerary of my schedule via email. No one in the camp is allowed to speak with reporters without permission. She orients me to the place and points in the direction I need to take for my first appointment with the Reverend Claire Van Cott. I walk down Stevens Street, past two women sitting on an inviting front porch spilling out onto a cottage garden. Purple passion flowers drape a chain-link fence, and butterflies flutter in the air, mingling with the old souls who have never left. Only spiritualists may own homes within the camp's boundaries, McCormick informed me. Their purchase of a house must be approved by the Board of Trustees, sort of like in a condo building. The streets here have names like Mediumship Way, Spiritualist Street, and Seneca Street, which honors the native spirit who guided George Colby to this place. Some of the buildings have historic placards, like Harmony Hall, circa 1897. Almost every story I've read about spiritualism begins in 1848 with two sisters, Maggie and Kate Fox, of Hydesville, New York. They are said to have heard a strange knocking in their home that they took to be a response to the questions they asked. The Fox sisters gained fame nationwide and contributed to a rapidly growing spiritualist movement in America. Women found a voice in spiritualism, which allowed them to speak publicly at a time when they could not do so otherwise. Women mediums often championed ideas of women's suffrage and equal rights for all. Others turned to spiritualist mediums to connect with the fathers, husbands, and sons who went off to fight in the Civil War. Because their bodies never returned home, their families sought comfort in knowing that at least their souls were at peace. By the end of the war, a reported 11 million Americans subscribed to spiritualism, and 35,000 were practicing mediums. Although the spiritualist movement was not without controversy and accusations of fraud. But it survived, and today about 200,000 Americans claim spiritualism as their religion. McCormick had clued me into the difference between a psychic, an intuitive person who has the ability to read and interpret human energy, and a medium who talks to the dead and is able to give information that has meaning. The Casadega camp has no psychics, but advertises its mediums and healers, those who can confer God's healing energies onto others. The camp's website offers guidance for prospective clients, among them. Try to put your mind at ease and relax before you seek a medium's help. It creates a better atmosphere for the reading and makes it easier for spirit to make contact. Spirit provides evidence of identity in many different ways. It may be by name, description, relationships, incidents, etc. Let the medium know when they are correct. Don't attempt to confuse them. Something may make more sense by the end of the reading or understanding of the message may come at a later time after you've had a chance to think about it. So don't be quick to say no to what is given by the medium. 
mediumship is not fortune-telling. It may not be fortune-telling, although I suspect many of the tourists who visit Casadega are looking exactly for that. McCormick also told me Van Cott had recently painted her house shades of calming amethyst, that I would not miss it. At noon, I stand on the reverend's doorstep, excited but also with trepidation as to what I will learn. I might have been more cynical had it not been for an incident five years ago that, well, blew my mind. It occurred at a Manhattan restaurant where I was having lunch with friends, among them the superstar mentalist Gerard Senehy, whose psychic abilities have earned him worldwide attention. As we waited for our food to arrive, Senehy was asked to show me, the skeptic, proof of his supernatural powers. He asked me to think back to my childhood, to remember a friend. I thought of someone I had not seen since the seventh grade, but who was special to me back then. Does her first name start with an S? Senehy asked. Yes, I replied. Does her last name start with an R? Again, I replied yes. And then he wrote out her full name. I sat there in astonishment, food spilling from my mouth. How could he know a person who has not been in my life since 1974? No one can explain Senehi's powers, not even he. But that day, he took away some of my doubts about supernatural powers. Van Cott, raised in an Irish Catholic family on Staten Island, worked for 25 years on Wall Street, but sometime after the September 11 attacks, she left the city for sunny Florida. She, like Tom Petty, had never heard of Casadega until she moved to this part of the state. She had always known she had special powers and built a new life as a certified medium and healer. She's no drive through psychic, she makes clear. Halloween is her least favorite time in Casadega. She purchased a two-story house within the confines of the spiritualist camp that she uses as her office. She welcomes me into a converted sunroom brimming with crystal ornaments, dragonflies, butterflies, wind chimes, and rose quartz. We begin the reading with the constant hum of a room air conditioning unit, struggling to keep up with the hot and heavy air outside. And a timer set for 30 minutes— Van Cott, in her undeniably New York accent, instructs me to answer her questions with only yes, no, or I don't know. I have come here today not knowing what I want to discover. I don't have a quest, but I clutch a gold bangle around my left wrist, one that my mother wore to signify her marriage. Van Cott had asked me to bring an item that meant something to me. If there is anyone in the world of the departed who I feel a connection with, it is my mother. Van Cott proceeds in businesslike manner to cover aspects of my life, about my parents, their relationship, how she sees my mother with my grandmother on the other side. They are doing an activity together, she says. Cooking, maybe? My mother is wearing a long skirt or something that is covering her legs. A sari, I think? She is sitting on a chair. Then Van Cott advises me about the frustrations in my own life. Are you working on a book yourself, she asks. No, I reply. This looks like an undeveloped thought for you. Will a book ever get published, Van Cott asks. Sometimes it's more a work of love than it is for the public. It feels as if there is a story there, she says. It's true I've been thinking of writing a story based on my own life. 
though much of what Van Cott says is discoverable with a Google search. Still, at moments her reading makes me stop and wonder how she might possibly have known certain things without the guidance of a higher being, whatever that may be. I sense there's a level of frustration you are feeling right now, she says. Nobody is playing nicely. How true, I think. Nothing in the past few weeks has gone the way I planned. I leave Van Cott's office $70 poorer and unsure whether I am richer for it in any way. On my walk back to the hotel, I stopped to chat with other visitors to Casadega. A woman whose father has just died of COVID-19. A young man who feels isolated in the pandemic. And Crystal Jones, 34, an actor in Orlando who has just returned to work after a long virus-imposed furlough. I find her sipping red wine with her friends on the hotel porch. They have come seeking emotional health and well-being. If you're the kind of person who is open to advice, it is certainly worth it to pony up the cash, Jones says. People love to learn more about themselves, and we're going through a lot right now as a nation. I make time to take the historic tour of Casadega, but by now the rain has finally arrived and we are forced to wear masks and socially distance inside to listen to our guide. The Sunset Orb tour is canceled, and instead it seems most of Casadega's visitors are jam-packed into the Sinatra's Ristorante at the Hotel Casadega for karaoke night. It's as though the spirits will protect them from the virus. I walk up the stairs and down a hallway lined with myriad mirrors to number 27, a sparsely decorated room with simple furnishings and a bathroom no bigger than the interior of my car. The sink, in Victorian fashion, is in the bedroom. Before I go to sleep, I peer out the door and into the hallway. Morn, the hotel owner, had assured me I would see the spirits. But all I see is the overhead light bouncing off the mirrors. All I hear is the thumping of the music from the bar downstairs. I want to stay awake and wait for the spirits. Instead, I fall into a deep sleep, oblivious to all. The next morning, after a breakfast of bagels and smoked salmon, I make my way to the Andrew Jackson Davis Educational Building across the street for Lyceum, or Sunday School, followed by Sunday service and a Grove service in which certified and student mediums bring messages and insights from the dead to those in attendance. Normally, Sunday services are held at the Colby Temple, but the building is undergoing major renovations. One of the speakers today is the Reverend Donald Zangi, a certified medium whose online bio says that in search of metaphysical teachings, he has visited Egypt, India, Canada, and Machu Picchu, Peru. He grew up a Catholic. Almost everyone I've met so far in Casadega is a northerner raised in the Catholic Church, and begins his comments today with the fear of death that was instilled in him at a young age. The extent of his religious training, he says, was heaven or hell. And so I would wake up sobbing, he tells the small gathering of 20 people. He says he no longer worries about dying, even though death is never far. His wife, Jeanette Strack Zangi, is 23 years older than he. 
I had met her the day before during a short visit to the couple's home just down the street from Horseshoe Park and the ferry trail. She, like the Reverend Van Cott, had never planned to settle here. She had heard the stories of Satanism and thought witches made their home in Casadega. I was scared to come here, she told me, as I settled on a chair in a sitting room filled with dolls, embroidered cushions, statuettes, opera masks, and more dolls. Hardly an inch of space in the Zangi household is left to spare. Marie Kondo would have a field day here. In her youth, Strack Zangi was as striking as a model, and even now she is a spry nonagenarian, impeccably dressed in black-and-white printed tunic and pants, a black flower headband wrapped around a shock of white hair. She has been a journalist, a teacher, and insurance saleswoman. She married twice and had some challenging relationships. At one time, her life had been tumultuous, so much so that she remains estranged from one of her sons. She met Zangi after she came to Casadega. In one of her many books, she recounts how the two discovered they had known each other in a past life and that they were meant to be soulmates. I live with death every day because of my age and my illnesses. It is my partner, she said. Every morning I wake up and think, I'm still here. God, she said, is in every breath she takes and God will be in her very last. I ask her if at 94 she spends her days contemplating her mortality. She assured me she won't be alone when death comes. I don't have a fear, no, she said. And then she laughed. I just hope I'm forgiven for the middle part of my life. Her words stay with me as Sunday services come to an end and it is time for me to head home. Ever since my parents died two decades ago, I have thought much about what happens to us after life ends. I'd like to believe my mother is with me always, that her soul is immortal. I'd like to believe that the Reverend Van Cott, the medium who did my reading, really did feel my mother's energy. Yes, yes, I'd like to believe. The rain has finally stopped. I know now there is no devil's chair in Casadega, not even a cemetery. I look up at the blue sky to see a bird flying overhead, a crow most likely. Then I begin my drive back to the hometown of Tom Petty, the B-side of his 1979 hit blasting through the car speakers. Oh, baby now, I think I'm starting to believe the things that I've heard, cause tonight in Casadega, I hang on every word. When I first uh, began bugging you uh, <laughs> about uh, your knowledge of, of narrative journalism uh, a few years ago, um, I quickly came to appreciate um, your philosophy uh, for not just the power of narrative, but how to go about crafting narrative, how to about building narrative stories. Um, and I'd just like to know where, you know, what was, was the trajectory for you 
kind of like when did narrative really come alive for you and how did it come alive? So that's a really great question. You know, I've been in journalism now for 37 years. I'm dating myself. Um, and you're right. I was a, a pretty good news reporter and I thought I was a pretty good news feature reporter. I certainly wrote a lot of them. And then in 2002, I started covering the Iraq war. I went to Iraq for the first time before the war started. Um, and um, that was a daunting assignment for me, like how I wanted very much to make my readers, and at the time I was working for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, I wanted them very much to understand the Iraqi people, the land, the culture, because I felt there was so much stereotyping in the mainstream media and misinformation, you know, about women, for instance, in Iraq. You know, Americans had this idea that women, that the, the Iraqi women were suffering the same plight as Afghan women under the Taliban, which was not true. Iraqi women had a lot of independence before the war started. So how best to convey these ideas? And I struggled with that until a couple of years later, a woman named Jan Winburn, who was also a mentor in this program, arrived in our newsroom. And I began working with her as my editor. And Shiri was the one who opened my eyes to the power of story. You know, and I think long time ago, she, I had a conversation with her where you know, in which she asked me, so you've written a lot of stories in your life, you know, what, think about what are the stories you really remember, you know, of all the news, the feature stories you've done, all the stories from Iraq that you've done, what are the stories you think readers will really remember? And I thought about it and I was like, okay, it is kind of hard to kind of remember like off, off, off the cuff like that, what stories I've done. And she said, but if you tell a story story about a person and their personal journey, their journey to overcome something, their journey to whatever that journey is. And in the war zone, there are certainly a lot of great stories, powerful stories of people surviving all sorts of horrific things and surviving trauma and loss and going on with life. She said, if you really narrow the lens and tell a story about a person. Those are the stories that are going to resonate with your readers. Those are the stories people remember. Like 20 years from now, you'll be able to say, yes, I remember that story I wrote about so-and-so, right? And something clicked in my head. And, you know, she often uses the quote from E.B. White, you know, who said, don't write about man, write about a man, right? And so all of a sudden something clicked in my head and I was like, I'm just one reporter on the ground here in Iraq. I, can't, I, I need to stop trying to tell these sweeping stories about you know, complex issues. I'm just gonna tell the stories that are unfolding in front of me. Like here's a woman I met yesterday. What is her story? Ask her some questions. Maybe there's an interesting story there to tell. And that's kind of what, started me on, on narrative. And when I first started doing it, I would just use elements of narrative writing because I didn't know how to structure a, a full-fledged story with a beginning, a middle, and an end, you know, a big 
problem that somebody has and the resolution that comes at the end of the story. I didn't know how to do narrative structure. So I just started borrowing elements of it. Like I started paying more attention, for instance, to character development. You know, think about what most journalists do, most news reporters, you know, you say Susie Doe, 54, who heads the local PTA. That's about all you learn about Susie Doe, even though she's quoted all throughout the story. Why don't we take the time to stop and say a little bit more about who Susie Doe is, that she's a mother of three children, that she once climbed Mount Everest or whatever she's done in her life. And so that's how I really got into narrative. I started going deeper into my characters and exploring their stories and telling their stories within the larger story. And eventually I learned how to get better at it to be able to tell full-fledged narratives. You brought this up briefly earlier, talking about um, the story you read and how you were, didn't initially initially uh, think of it as a story you would write in the first person. And, um, you know, as journalists, uh, you know, first person is always a, uh, a no-no or a last, you know, a, a, a last effort, a last ditch uh, effort. Um, and I remember, you, I mean, you have a, a, a resume of stories where you're writing about uh, other people complicated stories, uh, world-reaching stories that you still find a way to tenderly um, be part of is the first person. And I, I, I can imagine making that transition was really difficult as a, as, a, as, a, as a writer. And I'd like to know how you, how you made that transition into encouraging first person in your work. Yeah. So, you know, you're right, Andre, in that news reporters, especially those reporters who came up in my generation, I think were just, we, we were allergic to first person. Somehow, if you wrote a first person piece, you weren't really a good reporter. I mean, that's, that's the way, uh, that's the thinking that I was surrounded by. And again, I think the first person thing first came about for me in Iraq, you know, when um, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution decided to start a blog and I had to feed that blog uh, a lot. And it wasn't always possible every day to, to interview someone and tell a, a full-fledged story about someone else. Often it was my observations. That was my first attempt at writing uh, uh, sort of a reporter's notebook kind of thing for the blog, you know. And then I realized again that, you know, first person doesn't mean, I think we all have this uh, misconception that if you say I'm writing a first person story, it's about you, that, you know, but it's not. And, the, and that it's, it's a really difficult thing actually to inject yourself into a story and yet not make it all about you, right? To keep the focus on the person that you're telling the story about. But I think that first person does a couple of things, and these are important lessons I've learned. And I think that first person, my first person reporting was actually enabled. And uh, well, it was, it was enabled by the explosion of digital journalism. And my, I really blossomed into a, a first person reporter at CNN Digital. Um, but I think first person did two important things for me. One is, in a true narrative, 
you've got to have that arc of the story, right? And often I report, I did a lot of international reporting from difficult places where I didn't always have the luxury to spend the, the amount of time I would have needed to complete the story the way I wanted to tell it. Uh, whether it was in Iraq and I had to get out because of security reasons, or I did a story a few years ago about a woman who was at the center of a rape case. And she lived in a very remote village in the middle of India that was um, where communist rebels uh, were in charge or had a, wielded a lot of power. And not only that, but her sons were you know, sympathetic to these rebels and they made it clear to me that I, they didn't want me interviewing her, their mom. And it was, this just became a dangerous situation. We had to get out. So it, I would have loved to have done more reporting there, but I couldn't. And so what I learned about first person is you always need a character that's going to carry you through the entire narrative. And first person enables you to be the guide for the story. I am your guide. Let me, it sort of becomes a journey story. I am writing about someone else. I'm writing about Matura, which that's the name of the woman who in the rape story. I, this is her story, but I'm going to tell you the story. Come with me you know, and come with me into the story of her life. And it enables the, re the writer to carry that narrative forward. I become what we call the donkey character, right? I'm the one carrying the burden of the story to be told. But the other thing that I think is so key about first person, and I found it liberating, is that narrative journalism over the years has come under a lot of fire for lack of transparency, um, there have been some instances of fabrication, you know, or people sort of fudging things, making things up. And um, narrative journalists have come under uh, criticism for that. And a lot of people have questioned, like, how do you know the things you know? How can you write, like, with the voice of God? I mean, you're writing with so much authority. How do you verify everything? And I think the first person kind of liberates you from a lot of that because you can place yourself in a scene. You can say, here I am, you know, watching this unfold. And that's how I know this to be true because I saw this with my own eyes. Or you can say, so then I went to the courthouse and I looked up the court records. You could, you know, in, in, in before we had the internet, before we had digital journalism, newspapers would often print, you know, how the story was reported with the with the story to, sh to show every, you know, every step that the reporter took. But how cool is it to be just write it in first person and take the reader through that and be able to just link out to documents and other research that you've done. So I find it, find it very liberating to do that way. Now, having said that, I think it's really tricky because I think you can ruin the story by talking too much about yourself. You know, you've got to be able to just insert yourself in the right moments and then and then stand back and let the story unfold. The other thing I want to talk about related to this, um, and you brought up this whole idea of, of turning the story into the journey. And uh, I'm, uh, I was looking at this story and also thinking about uh, the number of other pieces of yours that I've read um, over the years and, and admired. And it's um, it is. A, a storytelling structure that you um, employ often and very well, this kind of uh, that reporter's journey story. Um, 
And it, it, it's essentially what you the structure you use in the the Casadega piece. And um, I just love to know, you know, what your thoughts are and why it's such a, a an effective way to tell a story, and maybe what some of the pitfalls might be for for doing a story like that. You know, I'll say again that I like the journey structure because I find it very liberating. I it frees me of of certain limitations that I might have or certain limitations that my of, in my reporting. And in many cases I'm unable to go back and do further reporting and I still have to fill out the story. But I think it makes the story a lot more intimate for my readers. You know, like, again, it's like I'm holding your hand and taking you on this journey. And often my stories are about subjects that are maybe alien to a lot of my readers, you know, including this latest piece on Casadega. I mean, I'm dealing with a subject matter that's not uh, not something that Americans, most Americans sit around and talk about every day and uh, introducing some very heavy and different concepts in the story. And I think it, um, it, it creates this intimacy between writer and audience. And through me, you know, by establishing myself as this person who lives in Gainesville, who listens to Tom Petty, I'm just like all of you, see? Now you all come with me on this journey to find this, find, find out more about this place that you may not, you may have some cert, whole certain stereotypes about and let me shatter those for you. So I, I find that, and you know, when I was at CNN Digital, we had done all sorts of studies that showed first person journalism actually did resonate with our readers that, and we would do all these studies to see if people were actually reading through these long form stories and what we call dwell time, right? And people were reading these stories, my stories over 5,000 words long on an iPhone and the dwell time would be seven, eight minutes, which is pretty good in this, in this uh, age of fast and furious news. So I think it, it's been, you know, it's been a long journey for me from the days of newspaper writing where I would have never, ever written about myself to now where you are right. I, that is my preferred mode of storytelling. I love to tell the journey story, especially because I write about topics that are sometimes very distant to people. Embedded in a journey story, we hope, is, is some kind of epiphany or revelation on some character's part, right? Um, and I know you kind of came out of this reporting and writing uh, this story uh, with, with a lot of questions still on your plate. But, you know, what did you kind of glean about yourself by getting through this, uh, this story? What, 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 did you figure anything out that you are taking forward into the future? I did, actually. You know, I, I told you that for me, the spiritual, a lot of aspects of what happens to us after life and religion and spiritualism, they've been things that I just have shunned all my life, you know, and, and then when my parents died, I began thinking about it, but I began thinking about it. I haven't really, you know, sat down and really looked at myself in the mirror and said, what do I believe? 
And I believe that this story, you know, the reporting I did for this story, um, and there are a lot of people I spoke to for this story who don't appear in the story because I wanted to educate myself on spiritualist beliefs. But after going to this place and being surrounded by people who actually believe that after someone dies, they are still with us very much. They're still very, very much with the living. I drove away from that place really thinking that my mom was with me, that my mother's spirit was with me, you know, and I don't know how to, how to wrap my head around that exactly to like, if you ask me, so how is she present in your life? I don't think I'd be able to answer that question, but I do know that I sense it. And every time I get really nervous or really scared, I feel that she's here with me and that gives me strength to go on. That is, I can't believe I'm telling you that because 20 years ago, I would have like laughed at myself. I said, You're, that's ridiculous. And it's been a, 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 it's not, it wasn't that Casadega just made this happen for me. I started thinking about it very seriously when I went to the Indian city of Varanasi in 2014. I, I, di I did a story for CNN on a place that people go to to die on the banks of the Ganges River. And I spent 10 days there and uh, with people who, who truly believe that if you die in that place, that your soul will go free. And that's when I first started thinking about my own parents and what happened. And because I had this guy who was my guide, who was a non-believer, he didn't believe in this place for the dying, but he had to show me around. He did tours of this, the holiest city in India, and he didn't believe in God. And something very strange happened when I was reporting that story. So every day, this guy and I would sit in this place for the dying, talking to the people who were there. And in the midst of reporting the story, his own father suddenly died. And he was a young guy and his father just out of the, his father wasn't sick. He, he was totally unexpected. He died. And he ended up doing all these rituals that he told me he would never do right in the abstract. He was never going to do it. But now that he was actually faced with his father's passing, I watched him wade into the Ganges river and do all this because he said, I want my father's soul to be free. And that's the story that really got me thinking about these things. And every time I report one of these stories, it forces me to really come to terms with these issues, which I don't always sit around and think about. But Casadega was one of those places where when I went to sleep that night in the hotel, after I stepped out of my room to see if I could see the ghosts, and I, I couldn't, all I saw was my own reflection in the mirrors. And I came back into the room and laid down on the bed. And I was like thinking about there is there is this feeling of being in that place surrounded by people who believed that the dead were among us. And it kind of amplified that belief for me that my mom and dad and their spirits might be with me for the rest of my life. And that's a very comforting feeling. Journalism can be used uh, to improve the journalist. Yeah, journalism definitely improves the journalists. And if it doesn't, then you need to get the hell out of journalism. <laughs> you know, um, it's like I, I, I know so many hardened war reporters who are completely numb 
to the things they see. And I look at them and say, it's time for you to leave the, the business. If you're not touched by the things that you report, and if you don't constantly grow as a person, not just as a journalist, but as a human being, uh, I think then it's time to do something else. Every story I do, I feel I, I am a, a richer person for it. There's something I've learned, even when I report on people who have diametrically opposing views or I don't agree with politically or religiously or any other way, there's always something to be learned from them. And, you know, one thing we didn't talk about earlier that I meant to mention is, you know, when you asked me about how I got into narrative journalism, the one thing that is so key about the kinds of storytelling that we talk about here is that these stories evoke empathy. You know, and whether, and that's so important in this day and age, especially when we're living in such a divided nation, um, to be able to read about someone who disagrees with you politically or, or in some other way, but you read their story and some part of their story touches you and you say, I kind of get where they're coming from. You know, I don't understand why they're doing the things they do, but. I, I can try to imagine what it feels like to be in their shoes. And that's the difference between story and reading a bunch of information that is presented to you in logical form. Going back to the Susie Doe example, why it's so important to develop characters, I think you mentioned it earlier. Like what Susie Doe has to say will become a little bit richer and deeper for you if you understand a little bit more about who Susie Doe is as a person, right? And so to develop Susie Doe beyond her age and her profession is really important in the story. Well, thank you, Moni, for joining me today to talk about the, the beautiful world of narrative nonfiction. Thank you so much, Andre, for having me. I've enjoyed this time together, and uh, I hope that both of us will continue to tell the kinds of stories that make our world a little bit richer. This episode featured music by Trey Trees Tango, Leo Rio Labietas. Chad Crouch and Big Mean Sound Machine. To learn more about Hearthell in the Low Residency MFA and Narrative Nonfiction Program at the University of Georgia, visit bit.ly slash Podcast. Again, that's bit.ly slash Podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We're at Hearthell Podcast on all platforms. Hearthell will be back soon with another true story.